Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. That thinks of the infinite value of God's gift to us and how we can never repay that back. I want to talk to you today about the idea of value and honor. Turn to 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17. This will be more of a sort of a teaching sermon, but I do have a very practical action step I want us all to take at the end. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17. This has been something that has been on my heart for a while. The idea of honoring a few weeks ago, there was some graffiti in the men's bathroom stall by the, by the, uh, the, the main, the, what do you call it, congregational area, uh, main auditorium. And the graffiti was about Joe Biden, and, and the graffiti said Biden followed by an obscenity. And I know that the faculty's crew has taken care of that since then, but it is something that, that is precisely what I want to talk about today within the context of 1 Peter 2, our obligation to our governing authorities. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation, that's conduct, anastrophe, having your conduct honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness and mercy. Thank you for the value that you bestowed upon us through your Son, Jesus Christ. May we in turn learn to show value to others and to pray for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Hold that place in 1 Peter 2. Hold your place there because I am going to throw a whole bunch of proof texts out at you that I think will inform our discussion of 1 Peter 2. First off, Jeremiah 29, 4-7. This passage, I've come to realize more and more, is really the foundation for Christian political ethics. It's the reason you can vote. It's the reason you should have to inform opinions on political things. It's perhaps the reason that you should vote particular ways and act particular ways in regards to the government. Jeremiah 29, 4-7. Within the context of the Babylonian captivity, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. Build ye houses, and dwell in them, and plant gardens, and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives, and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that they may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace, or the welfare, of the city whither I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it. For in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. We have an obligation, whatever, whatever government we may be under, good or bad, whatever society we may be a part of, we have an obligation to seek the welfare and the benefit and the peace of that society. That's why, for example, something like the Veterans Day banquet does double duty. On the one hand, it's a very good outreach that has a lot of fruit. On the other hand, let me ask you this. Is a nation where veterans are made to feel welcome and secure and appreciated a more stable nation where veterans are neglected and thrown under the bus, so to speak? Well, the answer is obviously yes. We are seeking the welfare of the nation. We do that by showing honor and respect, among other things. Romans 13.7. Romans 13.7.
Render, therefore, to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. This is within the context of a broader discussion on our relationship to governmental authorities. And lest we view all their due as an escape clause, well, I don't think honor is due that person, so I don't need to honor them. Let me remind you that this was written under Nero. This was written under the Roman Empire, not under Ronald Reagan with the Republican Senate and Republican House of Representatives. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. And 1 Peter says, honored all men. There is no escape clause for this. There is no qualification. There is no power, exousia, authority, but of God, even the bad ones. Everything is from God. Every single ruler that has ever been instituted from Vladimir Putin to President Joe Biden to King Nebuchadnezzar to Nero has been allowed to be in that position through the will of God, through the decree of God. Nero, by the way, was the emperor at the, apostle, at the time the apostle Paul wrote 1 Timothy, and most likely the emperor at the time that, first, that Peter wrote 1 Peter. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, and this is really pointing to the action step that I want us to reach at the very end. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And I kind of think the Apostle Paul has the Jeremiah passage in the back of his mind when he's writing this. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. There's two themes here, the salvation of souls, but also the welfare, the stability of the nation, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. Keep in mind that Nero was a debauched man. I, I won't even describe all the sorts of things he did, except to say that whatever you may think of as unique to the 21st century in the, form, in the sense of immorality and wicked lifestyle, Nero was already doing it 2,000 years ago. Nero was so bad, even Romans didn't think too highly of him. Tacitus was no fan of Nero and was no fan of Christians, and yet he paints the Christians in an almost sympathetic light as he describes how Nero tortured them. Once again, 1 Peter and 1 Timothy were written during the reign of Nero, most likely. Traditionally, the church fathers believe that Nero was responsible for the death of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. Now turn it back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's work through this. We start out in verses 11-12 with just a key point, a few key points to help us understand our own identity. I love 1 Peter in this regard. It's focused on spiritual identity. Whenever I, I hear the song, All I Am, I Am in Him, for me, that's like 1 Peter's theology in a nutshell. <clears throat> Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, or I would translate that strangers and resident aliens... This is probably both on the literal and on the metaphorical level. They were probably literal resident aliens and strangers and foreigners in Asia Minor. But on the metaphorical spiritual level, we understand we are all resident aliens within whatever society we live in. Or at least that's how we should be thinking of ourselves. The focus here is on conduct. Conversation is on a strophe. That means conduct. Having your conduct honest among the Gentiles. There are a couple things going on here. This is observable conduct. This is not something that can't be observed, something that your neighbor will never know about. This is observable conduct, and it's supposed to be good, kalos, beautiful. Having your conduct honest, that word is kalos. 
Believers are to understand their status as strangers and foreigners compared to the people around them, but they are to embrace such a pure and beautiful lifestyle that the people around them cannot consistently slander them without being embarrassed. Look at verse, the end of verse 12, uh, the beginning of verse 12, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may buy your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Later on, Peter says that they may be ashamed, which would slander you. Now, you're going to get slandered, so just get used to that. You will be slandered by the people around you. But if you are living the kind of lifestyle as a do-gooder, a doer of good, not an evildoer, if you are living the kind of lifestyle that Peter envisions here, it will be so obvious that the slander is slander. Yeah, that person, they're a Christian. What a loser, man. Wait a minute, what are you talking about? They shoveled my driveway when I fell and broke my hip. They brought food to my family when my wife was going through chemotherapy. In other words, slander will be exposed just for what it is if you're living the sort of lifestyle Peter envisions here. Notice the result of good works. As you embrace your identity as a stranger and foreigner but seek the welfare of those around you, what is the result of those good works? They may buy your good works which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now we are talking about pagan Gentiles here at the time Peter is writing. So take a pagan Gentile who has not been born again on their way to hell why in the world would such a pagan Gentile glorify God in the day of visitation? Now, we all know that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, but I don't think that's what's going on here. I think there's something more. Why would a pagan Gentile actually glorify God in the day of visitation in a way that would not have happened without the good works of Christians here? Well, what's the day of visitation, the final judgment day, right? I don't think somebody that's just been condemned to hell is going to be glorifying God in that sense. Something has happened. Something has changed. They've been born again. They can glorify God they've been, that they've been rescued out of that. In other words, good works do play an evangelistic role. Now, the two go hand in hand. When my father was on deputation uh, furlough at, at one point, the big debate, there's always a big debate, those of you going into missions, you th you'll think you'll know what the debate is, and then you'll come back home on furlough, and people will ask you questions that you totally did not anticipate. That's the life of a missionary. But the big debate at one point was, uh, lifestyle evangelism. And the debate was, you know, should we just live good lives and, and see people saved that way, or, sh or should we proclaim the gospel and see people saved that way, as if there were a false dichotomy, as if there were a dichotomy between the two. Well, both go hand in hand, and 1 Peter is very clear about that. When 1 Peter talks to wives with unbelieving husbands, he makes it clear that even though they do not obey the word, you may by your chaste conduct still win them over to the word. In other words, but it, it presumes that they have already been sharing the gospel with their husband, and their husband just says, ah, oh, shut up already about Jesus. I ain't going to church with you. All right, there's still hope. Live a godly life. Live, an, uh, live a pure life. Live a chaste life. Live, live a respectful life, and you can still win them over through that. But it also presumes that you have already been sharing the word with them. How can they disobey the word if they don't know what that word is? So the point is, lifestyle and vocal proclamation go hand in hand, and 1 Peter is all about that. There is an evangelistic background to this context, then. Much of the commands here have to do with the fact that we want people to get saved. Then we go into the commands with authority. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Now, context makes it clear, whether it be to the king is supreme, context makes it clear that we're talking about people here. But I want to just focus briefly on that word ordinance, if you'll allow me to be a nerd for a couple minutes. The word ordinance there is katissus. Catissus never in the entire Greek New Testament refers to either a political institution or a law. In fact, 
I don't think there is any place in the entirety of Greek literature where it refers to a law or a constitution or an organization or anything like that. Catissus consistently refers either to creation as a whole or to a created being, whether that be an animal or a person. So Mark 10, for example, all of creation. Uh, Romans 1.25, however, they serve the creature, i.e. the created being, rather than the creator. So I want to focus on that. Catissus as a created being. And then notice that word of man. That's not your normal anthropo. That's not anthropos in the genitive. It's a special adjective that is fairly rare. Anthropinos only occurs seven times in the New Testament. It means human. It's a very odd way to refer to the emperor. And the king as supreme refers to emperor, not just any king. But it's a very odd way to refer to the emperor. Why would Peter be doing that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Those of you that have been studying backgrounds with me in hermeneutics, there is something called the imperial cult going on during this time. In fact, Asia Minor is huge into the imperial cult. There are various cities competing with each other for the right to honor the emperor as God, as a deity. And yet, by calling the emperor a human creature, what is Peter doing? He is simultaneously reminding us of our place, but he is also putting the emperor in his place. There is a subtle pushback against the imperial cult here. There is a whale of a difference, then, between honoring and obeying somebody as God and honoring and obeying somebody as a human creature. New Testament scholar Travis Williams says, Since the term catissus is most commonly associated with the creative act or creative results of God, especially in biblical literature, the point must be in some way related to the emperor and his creatureliness. The adjectival modifier anthropinos further confirms this thesis, for it is a word commonly used to contrast the human with the divine. So, in other words, in the first century, the Roman emperor is being worshipped as divine. Peter is reminding us that, yes, although we honor and respect and obey him, we do not honor and obey and respect him in the same way that the pagans do, as if he were divine. Rather, we honor and obey and respect him as a human creature. And there's a whale of the difference between the two. Because if I am honoring and obeying and respecting the emperor as divine, there are no limits then to my obedience. But if I am honoring and respecting and obeying the emperor as a human creature, well, guess who outranks a human creature? God himself. That puts limits on my obedience. We ought to obey God rather than man. This point is further amplified in verses 15 and 16. For so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence ignorance of foolish men as free. This is some bold language to use in regards to a person's relationship to the Roman emperor as free. I am actually free from the emperor. The reason I am obeying the emperor is not because of something inherent within the emperor's DNA, not because of something ontologically true about the emperor. It is because it is the will of God that I obey the emperor, not because it is the will of the emperor. And also because I want to be evangelistic that I may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. For, the, for testimony's sake, Paul and Peter were both concerned with Christians, that Christians not be taken for revolutionaries. In fact, this is part of the Apostle Paul's whole strategy in Acts where he appeals to Caesar. He wants to show up before Caesar and be able to give a defense of Christianity that it is no threat to the Roman Empire, that it should not be considered religio illicita, an illegal religion. He wants freedom for Christianity, and for the most part, that, that uh, strategy worked. It's not really until the 90s that we see an empire-wide formal persecution of Christianity. Now, Nero did go bonkers and persecute Christians, but that was just in Rome. 
So by and large, Christianity for the next few decades is going to be tolerated, though that will eventually change. Christians then should be good citizens no matter who's in charge. They should obey the emperor when at all possible for the sake of testimony. But secondly, we obey the emperor not because we're the emperor's servants, but rather because we are the servants of God. We are, in fact, free men who do not worship the emperor. We are free men in regards to the emperor, but we are God's servants. The pagans who worship the emperor look to him as the savior of the world and the bringer of peace on earth. Octavius, a.k.a. Caesar Augustus, his birthday was actually called the beginning of the euangelion of the world. What's euangelion? Tell me. Gospel. The beginning of the good news for the world. That's the sort of rhetoric that was used in regards to the emperor. And by the way, there has been similar rhetoric used of U.S. presidents on both the right and the left, too. But that's a different story for a different time. <laughs> Yet Peter declares that we as Christians are free from the emperor for that sort of a thing. We, are, we do not look to the emperor as savior. We do not look to the emperor's birthday as the euangelion, the gospel for the world. We have no obligations to the emperor, but we owe everything to God. I love what German scholar Frederick Stroger says here in his book, Community in First Peter. The Christian is free because he expects nothing from Caesar or from the governor, but all from the Lord. Not from Lord Caesar, but from Lord Christ. What is meant here by freedom is that one is free from anxiety about his own salvation. He stands completely in the favor of God, and he is free from any anxiety in his interaction with the rest of humankind. In an honor-shame culture in Asia Minor in the first century, what the emperor thought about you and your city mattered. For the Christian, it doesn't. It doesn't matter what they think about us. I do not honor the emperor so that he will honor me. I do not honor the emperor so that he will think well of me. I do not honor the emperor or the governor so that I can gain benefit from them. To the contrary, I honor the emperor because I'm a servant of God. The emperor provides you nothing. Christ provides you everything. You do not rely, need to rely on the emperor or the governor or the state. The reason you obey and respect the emperor, the president, the governor, the state, the mayor, is not to get anything out of them. And by the way, if you're only honoring the people that you voted for because you think they'll benefit you, you're missing the whole point here. You honor them because you are divine emissaries representing the kingdom of God. This then leads us to verse 17. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Notice the honor command brackets the entire verse. What's fascinating to me, though, is that he doesn't say honor the emperor first. He says honor all men first. I love what Peter David's, how he puts it. And naturally, one should show respect to the emperor. He is, of course, one of everyone. <laughs> it's like you honor the emperor almost as an afterthought because, oh yeah, by the way, he is human and we should be honoring all people, so we might as well honor the emperor too. That's almost the impression you get here. We honor the emperor not because he's a god, because he is one of all men. Now, with that in mind, hold to that concept of honor, hold to that key word of honor. I want to dig a little bit deeper into that. A couple weeks, Dr. Jim preached a great sermon about honoring your parents, and I want to take some of the same principles and focus on honoring your political authorities then, the emperor and the governor and so forth. The Hebrew word for honor is kavod. It means to have weight. I think Dr. Jim made that very point as well. I want to take that idea and apply it to our political leaders today. To have weight, it means something. It has weight. It is not something that can be casually dismissed. We must not forget that honor is something that exists in every realm of life, in the mundane day-to-day -day matters of existence. You dishonor your mom when you do not take out the trash when she asks you to. Why? 
Because essentially you are saying, Mother, your words have no relevance, no weight to how I live my life. Conversely, you honor your father or your mother, as the case may be, when you throw a football with him. Why? Because you are saying time spent with you has value. It has weight. In the same way, our everyday speech, our attitude, our comments that we make, the snide remarks, the jokes, all of this manifests to the world whether or not somebody has value in our perspective. If you mock your father or mother, you are demonstrating to other people that they are of little value to you. Conversely, if you allow others to mock your father or mother or make fun of them in front of you, you are agreeing with them that they have little value. You cannot be truly honoring all men then, with that in mind, if in fact you subject certain people to mockery but not others. If in fact you would only stop the car to help certain people change a tire, if in fact you would never yell an insult at your mother or father but you would yell an insult to a politician on the screen, or a referee or an umpire for that matter, but here I've left preaching and gone to meddling. <laughs> but I'm preaching to myself on that as well. And let me stress a very important point here. I have heard good Christians, Christians that I respect, I have heard good Christians say, I respect the office and not the man. And I can understand the sentiments, but the problem is Scripture does not give us that option. Scripture does not say, honor all political offices. Scripture did not say, honor the office of the emperor. Scripture says, honor all men. That includes Nero. As difficult as it may be, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter are saying, honor Nero. Why then do we honor all men? Turn to Matthew 5, hold your place in 1 Peter. Turn to Matthew 5, 43 through 45. You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. When was the last time you blessed a Democrat? Do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. By the way, God did more than just send his rain on the unjust. God did more for the ungodly than just send the rain to fall on their crops. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for the just and the unjust. Often we focus on the pain endured at the cross at the exclusion of the shame. I, I suspect, I haven't yet done a study where I can prove this, I suspect that the epistles of, of the Apostle Paul are actually more concerned with the shame of the cross than the pain of the cross in regarding its significance. There may perhaps have been more painful ways to die in history, perhaps some forms of poison, I don't know. But I am fairly certain that there has never been a more shameful way to die than the cross. Publicly exposed, naked, surrounded by taunting people, set up there by the Roman government as an illustration of what happens when you mess with the Roman government. But even more than that, the... A crucifixion was, in fact, the penalty reserved for the lowest in society, the scum of the earth, the slaves who were nothing, the rebels against Rome who were as bad as slaves. Roman citizens, of course, could not be crucified except under extremely extraordinary circumstances. The Latin word crux was an obscenity. 
if you say the word crooks in polite conversation, it's one of those things where everybody gasps and somebody drops their glass and there's a very awkward pause. This is the ultimate irony in history. God so honored the world that he publicly shamed his son. That's how much God valued the world. That's how much God valued his enemies. Dear student, do you wish to know why you should honor President Joe Biden? Because Jesus Christ honored him on the cross. Jesus Christ shed his blood for Joe Biden on the cross and declared publicly to the entire universe, Joe Biden has value. He is worth dying for. If we take a political figure and make him an object of our mockery and of our derision, we are turning the cross of Christ into a lie. We are saying that person has no value, that person has no weight. We are contradicting the opinion of Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, I am not here talking about criticism. When you criticize somebody, that does not mean that you are considering them a little value. To the contrary, that may actually be an indication that you value them very much and you want them to improve. Remember that next time you read my paper evaluations. <laughs> this is not about exposing sin or confronting somebody about sin. And this has sometimes been a problem both within fundamentalist churches and evangelical churches. Well, we just, we know that that pastor or authority figure or, or even deacon or whatever is sinning, but we just turn a blind eye to it in the, in the name of respecting authority, touch, uh, you know, touch not God's anointed and, and so forth. And we misunderstand the point is that when we do that, we are actually dishonoring them because we are allowing them to go down a path of destruction without correcting them. That is proof that we don't actually care for them. So yes, we do confront sin and it is appropriate to criticize. There's plenty of criticism in the Old and New Testament by godly people. The prophet Nathan actually had the best interest of David in mind when he confronted him about Bathsheba. When the apostle Paul rebuked the apostle Peter, he has the concerns of the church and the Apostle Peter's own ministry in mind. Jesus himself was not above giving an apt nickname to somebody. Jesus called Herod that fox in Luke 13, 32. And yet Jesus never made anybody the object of cheap jokes or mockery. This can be difficult sometimes. I remember back in the 90s when Bill Clinton was president. To a certain degree, you could say his moral lifestyle and character brought it on himself. And yet... Looking back on it now, hindsight is 2020. Looking back at it now, I wonder how much of the mockery we independent fundamental Baptists heaped on him was really worthwhile. And it wasn't us. We were taking our cue from Rush Limbaugh, so it wasn't totally our fault. But I wonder how much of that was appropriate and how much of that perhaps was dishonoring. What I'm talking about here is an attitude that treats a political figure as so totally devoid of value in our eyes that they can do nothing right. 2009, September, uh, I think it was September, back in 2009, Somali pirates capture an American cargo ship. Uh, President Barack Obama was in charge back then. I remember a fellow alumni of my college posting online during this whole event how Barack Obama was too much of a wimp that he would cave into the pirates. And yet Barack Obama had given the U.S. Navy snipers a green light, or more specifically the U.S. Navy commander a green light to take whatever steps he felt necessary if, in fact, the life of the U.S. captain was in danger. Mere hours after my acquaintance had, had posted that on social media, U.S. snipers took out the Somali pirates and rescued the captain. And yet, even course, of course, not even that will satisfy everybody. And yet we have to give credit where credit is due. 
There are certain things we should oppose the president or the governor on with confidence. The more scripture is clear on something, the more we do need to take a stand, i.e. abortion. We don't need to become wimps about abortion, the transgender issue. But believe it or not, not everything a Democratic president does is wrong. And sometimes I think we delude ourselves that we know all the facts because we listen to the radio and check the, web and check the internet, that we delude ourselves into thinking that we know all the facts when in fact we may know a lot less about a matter than we think they do. We all like to become armchair politicians. Now, we all like to watch a sports game and criticize the, the manager or the coach and so forth for mistakes they made. But in retrospect, that's pretty stupid. Like, who are we, <laughs> right? What experience do we have? So honor, treat them as valuable. And by the way, here's a thought. Let's say, for the sake of argument, President Joe Biden won unfairly. Okay, that's a popular narrative. Perhaps it's right. Personally, I'm unconvinced of that, but I'm willing to consider the possibility at least. Let's say that President Joe Biden hypothetically won unfairly and that President Trump should still be president. Does that free us from our moral responsibility towards him? Do you honestly think that the Roman emperors got into their position through a fair and balanced and accurate voting process? No, they didn't. Scripture does not tell us to honor people on the basis of how they came into power. It simply tells us to honor them. Now, here's the practical step we're going to take as a result of that. I want us to lead to a specific action step, namely prayer. I believe prayer is one of the foundational ways you can honor people. It's one of the foundational ways you indicate that they have value. We've all had that case where we've promised somebody that we'd pray for them about something specific, right? Oh, man, my mom's in the hospital. Could you pray for her? Oh, sure. And then a week later, you, say, you see them and, oh, no, oops, I forgot to pray. Um, dear Lord, bless her mom in the hospital. Hey, man, how's your mom in the hospital? I've been praying for you, right? I won't ask for a show of hands on that. I know I've been guilty of that. Well, that's an indication they don't have too much value yet in your, in your heart and mind. But praying is a foundational way to show people honor. So, Bow your heads, close your eyes real quick. I'm going to ask a couple questions. I'm not going to be too intrusive here, but I do want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm not going to ask you to raise anything for any negative confession, but I do want to see, just out of curiosity, in light of back in 1 Timothy, the passage in 1 Timothy, praying for authorities, here's the question I'm going to ask, and in a minute I'll ask you to raise your hands. Um, do you pray for Joe Biden? And here's specifically, specifically what I'm looking for. Do you plan once a week to pray for Joe Biden and then follow through with that. And students, if you can say, and I don't mean just randomly it comes to your mind once in a while, but if you can say, yes, I plan out to pray for Joe Biden once a week, and I follow through with that. I don't mean every single week in the past three months, but generally speaking, consistently on a weekly basis, um, substitute president with prime minister or whoever the leader of your country is, for those of you that are not American citizens, Whoever you believe the main leader of your country is, if you can say, more or less, not perfectly, but more or less, I pray for them, for him on a weekly basis, I want you to raise your hand. One, two, three, four, five, six, I see maybe seven people. I had hoped for a little bit better. I had hoped for half. I think we can do better than that, don't you think? Let me ask you another question. <laughs> I am very tempted to ask how many of you prayed for President Trump when he was president. I, I think there would be more there, but we won't go there. How many of you can say, once a week, same, same qualifications, I don't mean every single week, but students, once a week, I pray for the governor of my state or province or maybe somebody more on the local level. Once a week, generally speaking, I pray for that person. If that's the case, please raise your hand. 
Okay, a few less, I think, maybe three or four I'm seeing here. Okay. All right, that's our action step. That's what we're going to do for the next five minutes. You can look up this way. I think we can do better on that. Honestly, I did not have, I, I owe so much to Dr. Jim. This is one of the biggest areas I have changed since coming here. I have changed in quite a, quite a few ways, hopefully for the better. But this is one of the biggest areas I have changed is that, you know, really before coming here, where I, my prayer life was pretty anemic. And Dr. Jim's preaching, especially 2015, 2016, radically changed that in my life and was a big help. And it really probably wasn't, I, I was praying consistently for the president. But the Holy Spirit, I think maybe about two years ago, laid on my heart to start expanding, to pray for the governor consistently, to pray for senators and so forth. I have a list of five senators or representatives that I pray for as well. And I've started praying also for the uh, uh, Menominee Falls, which is uh, David Glasgow, is that correct? Is that, yeah, David Glasgow, I pray for him consistently as well. And I think that would be something to remember. So I think there's room for improvement here for all of us. And I speak to myself as well. I think there's still a few people out there that I need to be praying for consistently. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a few minutes, and we're going to pray for President Joe Biden. And then we're take, going to take a few minutes, and we're going to pray for Governor Tony Evers. And then we're going to take a few minutes and pray for just any authority figure that God has laid on your heart. Here's what I want us to focus on, the salvation of President Biden and his wife, but also wisdom. Now, I do believe it is appropriate to pray against the president sometimes. So, for example, one thing I pray is, Lord, may he not harm religious freedom or the unborn. You know, foil him from harming religious freedom or the own. So that's one thing. But that is just a fraction of it. Everything else I pray is positively oriented. I pray for his salvation. I pray for his well-being. I pray for wisdom. Wisdom in a proverb sense. He know, did, you, did you realize that President Biden knows a lot of stuff about the state of the world and the country that we don't know? Did that ever occur? But wait a minute. I listen to the radio and I go on the internet. Well, believe it or not, there may be some things that we don't know that, that he knows. Well, he needs wisdom for that. Something the Holy Spirit struck me about recently, and this I need to improve on, um, President Biden is struggling, as we, as we watch him, as he does interviews and all that, we've noticed that he struggles a little bit mentally. And on the one hand, that may very well be a good reason for people to not vote for him the next round. But on the other hand, if we are truly seeking the welfare of the nation, should we not pray against that? And I'm, I'm not near as consistent on this as I, as I need to be. Don't you think it would please God if we prayed for his mental health, that that would improve? Which is more stable, a nation with a president that is sharp mentally or a nation with a president that might sometimes be struggling mentally as, as the older he gets? Would that not be part of seeking the welfare of the nation? That, that thought has just occurred to me recently and something I need to implement more. All right, so bow your heads. I'm going to lead us, and then I want to hear from you all. I want to hear some prayers, whatever the Holy Spirit leads on your life, uh, uh, lays on your heart. I want to hear some prayers for President Joe Biden or the main leader of, of your country, wherever that might be.